do a couple things and then add something tonight before we jump in. We're going to look at three passages. And I put you around tables because you're going to play with these passages. All right? And um, so if you haven't signed in, make sure you sign in so I can get you on my email list. And more handouts are being made for those of you that didn't get them. Okay? Um, go to the go to the picture of the three-legged stool. Let me start there. Summarize it for you. Okay, Bible study is not um, it's not complex. It's not hard to do, but it is hard work. Do it well. Okay, so the three-legged stool. If you picture this, a three-legged stool means that. You cannot do without one of the legs, and all three legs are equally important. And so there's three parts of Bible study that have to be done to do it, to really do it well. One of them is historical grammatical. For those of you that weren't here last week, one of the boxes is historical grammatical, and I'm going to go back and tell you what that means. That's actually what you're all familiar with, that one right there. I just gave you the technical term for it. The second one is cultural or background analysis cultural background analysis. And then the third one is missional or redemptive analysis. And let me just summarize all three. I won't give you all the examples that I gave last week. Um, Historical grammatical is looking at the words in the sentence, the the grammar, what we call syntax, the context of the book it's written in. And uh, you're all familiar with that. When you do Bible studies, like in small groups, this is typically the one leg that you do well. You know how to look at the, the words that are being talked about and, make, and try to make sense of it. Cultural analysis or background analysis is looking at the background to which the verse is given. And that's driven by a theological belief that God is always at work redeeming or fixing something that's broken. So if you don't know what was happening in the culture in which the verse was written, then it's very difficult to see what God was fixing or redeeming. So we're going to actually look at some examples tonight. I have more handouts to give you where you can, at your tables, you're going to play with three different passages and look at what might change in the way you understand it just by looking at the background. So when God speaks or when God acts, he always acts in such a way to make something better, to fix something that's broken, to repair sin. We call that redemption. So when he speaks or acts, which is recorded in the Bible, we should look at the culture in which he says that, and then we get a glimpse of what he's trying to fix. Does that make sense? Can I say it that way? Okay, cultural analysis. The third one is missional or redemptive analysis. That's looking at the history of how God intervenes. Why now? Why did God intervene in Exodus? Why, in fact, in Genesis 1, why did he tell the creation story to Moses and the Israelites. Why didn't he tell it to Abraham 500 years earlier or David 500 years later? Why did he do it at that point in time? If you can answer that question, and I'll admit to you that's one of the most challenging parts, but if you can answer that question, you begin to see why at certain points in Scripture, God allows things that to us, we're going, what? What on earth was he doing there? It doesn't make sense at all from ours. But let me describe this third one this way. If you could lay out the Bible in the order it was written, here's what you'd find. Every time God speaks or acts, 
he's beginning the process of fixing or redeeming something that's broken. So as you move through the Bible, you see him making this happen. But he doesn't fix everything at the same time, all at once. He just doesn't do that because we couldn't handle it. Think about your own lives. If God had sat you down on the day that he saved you, the day that you believed in him, and he said, all right, let me, uh, Chris, let me tell you all that's wrong with you, buddy. Here's a list of the 48,000 things you're going to have to fix in the next 48 hours. You'd die, wouldn't you? We all would. Okay? He doesn't work that way. He just begins a gradual work of grace where his spirit begins to intervene in our lives. And then over the next rest of life, he begins to redeem us, doesn't he? We start to love people better. We start to be more generous. We start to be more serious about our faith, uh, more caring. He does it slowly. He doesn't do it quickly. Um, That's the model that we see globally as well. So God doesn't do it quickly. Here he is. He takes one problem, and he says, let's fix the one. Then he moves. Let's fix another. Let's fix another. Let's fix another. You see, does that make sense? That's that third category. If we can understand why he's doing what he's doing over time, then it makes us, helps us make sense of why do we have these things in the Old Testament that are just nuts, you know, hard to understand. They still reflect his grace, but they're very challenging to make sense. You got the handouts? Okay, so if you didn't get a copy of it, there's some extra ones from last week. And it's, it's a gracious God that takes his time. Remember, he didn't create the mess. We did. <laughs> and he's very patient. Or, uh, as Scripture says, he's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. Right? So we have lots of examples that he's very patient. He allowed the Israelites to go several hundred years before he finally put his foot down. He warned and he warned and he warned and he warned and he warned. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And he finally said, all right, guys. I get it. You're not going to give in. Here's the line in the sand. You cross it, you're in trouble. He takes his time. That's grace. That's grace. And you think, well, why doesn't God move faster? <coughs> How many of you are old enough to remember the Civil Rights Act in 1964? Sadly, I am. <laughs> okay. Have we fixed civil rights in our country? No, we've barely made a dent. Oh, we, what, de- what progress we have made is good, but it's not good enough. Is it? Think about how long it's taken us just to try to solve one problem as a culture. All right? We don't move fast, do we? Man, our cultural conscience is pretty deeply embedded. We don't like to, to move fast at all. Just the way it is. So this third one shows God's grace. It shows his patience. And it shows why he did what he did at certain times of the Bible. Now, the great thing about this third one is, um, no, let's stay in that. Maybe it's me bugging the cord. <coughs> okay, be gentle. All right. As he's moving, remember, there's a set of cultural values here that we don't hold to today. But he allowed those cultural values to stay there while he worked within that framework. So when you go back into the Old Testament, slavery, you're going to see a little bit of this tonight. Slavery was part of the world. And what slavery included was, if I am the man that owns all of the wives, the children, and the slaves, I can basically do what I want with them. Their property. That included sexual rights to the male and female slaves. What a mess. And so God begins to 
intervene in that cultural setting to start to fix that. But while he's fixing one thing, he's allowing other things to exist. Courtney, go ahead and sign in and get a handout from last week. So while he's fixing one, he allows other values to exist. He doesn't get to them all right away. So we see things that God allows in the Old Testament or even commands that we're scratching our head and thinking, how in the world could God do that? Because he hasn't gotten to yet. So we do not have to, ex- uh, to assume the cultural values of this period of time because that's not where we are. So he moves to the next section and he fixes more things. And again, we don't have to assume the cultural values of these things. Then he moves to this area. Then he moves to the next area. So in the New Testament, we don't have to assume the cultural values or live under them of the first century Roman world. We just don't have to. Okay? That's the great thing about the Bible. It's the only great book that does that. Because he's moving, his whole goal is to redeem these broken cultural values and move from time to time. And so we can look back and see what the cultural values are and we don't have to worry about it. If you want to become Muslim, you have to adopt the cultural values of the 7th century because it was written at a point in time. That, is, that it means subjugation of women. Because, you know, women weren't treated equally <laughs> in the 7th century. They barely are today. But they definitely weren't in the 7th century. So if you want to become Muslim, they were written at, a bo- at one period of time, and you have to assume the cultural values of the book that controls Muslim teaching. Does that make sense? If you want to become Hindu, you have to assume cultural values way back here that predate Christianity because it's an older religion. So they don't have teachings on sexual morality. They don't. Nothing in there. Same with Buddhism. No, no teachings on the things that we hold dear in our culture because Christianity brought those to the table. So the missional or the redemptive one is a lot longer but shows why God allows certain things in Scripture when he does. Okay, when I just explain it that way, does that make sense to you? That help summarize from last week? Okay, so all three of these are very important parts of Bible study. And believe it or not, Mark and I use all three of these every day of the week. We live with these. We're always in our offices borrowing each other books, each other's books. And what does Keener say about this or this cultural issue? What does so-and-so say about that? And that sort of thing. So <coughs> this is what we do to prepare to teach. We, we go through it and we, we try to answer. And by the way, we can't answer all three. Okay? We just can't. I gave you the example and a whole bunch of you asked me about it. Turn to First Timothy 2. We went over this last week. We went over one part of it. First Timothy 2. I said, let's turn to the most con- one of the most controversial verses in the Bible, verse 8. And you all kind of looked at me like I was had a screw loose. <laughs> What's so controversial about that? Other than the fact that men never do it, nothing's controversial about it. And this is the Greek word for andros or males. I want the males everywhere to pray, lifting up their hands. We don't do that today, do we? What would make it controversial if I stood up in the pulpit and I said, all you guys, you're in sin. Get your hands up. <laughs> Based on this verse. So we have no problem culturalizing or contextualizing this one, but then we go right down to verse 11 and 12, and uh, we don't do that. Many of our churches still try to enforce 11 and 12, but not 8. Why? If we're going to do it all, let's do it all, right? Unless you've got a good scheme. But then a bunch of you asked me <laughs> about 13, 14, uh, 13 and 14 and 15. Just read those for a second. And you, you, I hope I could get away with it, that you would not notice that I skipped those verses. <laughs> those are tough verses, right? I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. 
Verse 13, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Yikes. What do we do with that? So, I got asked on break. I got asked after class. I've been sent emails, and I've been asked in person by my, my wife. <laughs> I just told her that is. Captain in the car, I, I told her, I said, this is my reason for beer for exercising leadership in the family. You know? Easily deceived. Can't be trusted. <laughs> of course, that immediately brings a whap. Right? So what do we do with these passages here? I'll be honest with you, I don't know. And furthermore, I'm not bothered by the fact that I don't know. There's got to be at least 16 interpretations of this passage. In other words, nobody knows. We simply don't know. And my basic rule of thumb is when the church cannot agree on the interpretation of a passage, let it go. Don't build any theology on it. Have fun with it. Play with it. Guess, but don't build any practice based on that. If the church finally comes to the point where all of a sudden one day we discover an archaeological find that helps us understand what Paul was talking about, we're all going to go, oh, that's what he meant. And the whole church just comes together, boom, world, worldwide. Now it becomes part of our theology. But as long as it's controversial, let it go. Enjoy it. Try to make sense of it. And don't worry about being right, because you aren't going to be. It's not possible. There's a lot of theories. The one that I happen to favor right now, at this point in time, <coughs> is that uh, we know from chapter 4, these people who are, uh, verse 3, who are bringing heresy or forbidding people to marry. We have a little bit of evidence that says that as women were trying to find their way in the first century, they were uh, attempting to uh, exert more force and change the rules. Well, that kind of going on today. Why am I saying that? No, no. <laughs> they would, uh, they would, they, they had, uh, we have some evidence where they were teaching that that whole thing about creation and, and Eve being deceived, that's a myth. It's not true. You know, in fact, that's not what he says in verse 4. Um, these, these teachings, they're, they're not right. They forbid people to marry. They go on to say to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received. No, this is not the Catholic Church. Okay, I've heard that presented several times. That's anachronism where you're taking a current day practice and building it back in. The Catholic Church didn't exist when Paul wrote this. So this is dealing, possibly dealing with some women in Ephesus. This is Timothy writing to Ephesus. Paul writing to Ephesus to Timothy. And they were saying that was all myth, what happened in the creation. Eve wasn't deceived. Don't believe it for a second. And all Paul's doing here is stating a fact. He didn't say anything about what you do with it. He said, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived. It is true. It's a true fact. You can have confidence in the creation story, in other words. He's not saying anything to do. We extrapolate out, well, then women must be easily deceived. He didn't say that. He's just asserting a fact here that's true. That's all he's doing. Okay. And it gets more complex beyond that. So I don't know what to do with it. And I don't feel bad about not knowing what to do with it. Every time a new commentary comes out on Timothy, I turn to this section and read it. Yep, you didn't figure it out either. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Someday somebody might figure it out and we'll rejoice and we'll understand what was going on. So that raises a principle in interpretation. Number one is you don't always have to be right. In fact, a good portion of the time you're going to be wrong and that's okay. 
nothing wrong with it. I do not feel bad about having bad interpretations. You know why? You when I, you know how I know I have bad interpretations because like a couple of years later, I'm looking back and I'm thinking, oh, why in the world did I teach that? <laughs> Mark and I have more than once gone into one of our offices, shaking our heads, going, "We did say that on Sunday, didn't we?" <laughs> Whoops. Let's think about how to say it better next time. Maybe they won't remember. See, I have, I have a great thing on my favor. I know that you're going to remember 10% of what I say on any given Sunday. So the probability is really good that you're not even going to catch it. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We're, we're frail humans trying to figure out a story of a loving God. So you don't have to be right, and you don't have to have every text figured out. Okay? You just don't have to. Here's how I think about how we build doctrine and practice. So I'll illustrate it. Um, I took the elders through this. We just played with it on the retreat. Drew a line down the middle, and I said, okay, what are common teachings and what are uncommon teachings? Okay, so give me some examples of common teaching throughout the New Testament. Okay, loving. So be loving, absolutely. It's in every book. What else? Faith? Okay, actually that's not. That's only in a couple books. So we could put that over here on this side. The whole what do you do with slavery? Right? How about Trinity? That's all throughout the New Testament. How about Jesus? Yeah, Jesus is everywhere, isn't he? Boy, oh boy. You can't you just about can't turn to any chapter without finding Jesus. Okay? So you make a list. Give me some uncommon things. I'll give you one. Handling of poisonous snakes, Mark 16. Okay? What else? Ha <laughs> ha! Raising your hands. I love it. Men raising hands. In fact, that's only found one place. <laughs> Tongues, you bet. Tongues. I got that spelled wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> Tongues, you can laugh at me. <laughs> but not all spiritual gifts, because uh, the gift of service is, is all throughout the scriptures, isn't it? So let's put service over here. How about women? Over here. That's uncommon. It only occurs four times. All right, so here's my basic approach to theology. We're going to expand on this as the class unfolds. Let's build our theology and our practice over here, not over here. Okay, we could put head coverings here. If it was important that the church know that they should wear head coverings and it would occur in a common way, that's my theological belief. It only occurs in 1 Corinthians 11. What that means is the people in Asia Minor didn't know about it, right? People in Crete didn't know about it. The expanding kingdom, as the, ki as the throughout the empire, as the church expanded throughout the empire, they didn't know about it because they didn't have the Bible. Honestly, the fact that you have the Bible today is a really late uh, gift. It really is. Up until the printing press, nobody had it except uh, convents and monasteries. And, and even to this part of the world today, more Christians don't have the whole Bible than do have it. So doesn't it make sense that what's common is what we should form our theology and practice on? <coughs> so 
I pay attention because our doctrinal statement is rooted over here. And whoever our forefathers were that wrote that statement, those folks, they were brilliant. They don't get into the question of the rapture. They don't get into the question of the millennial kingdom. None of that is discussed. That is a late convention. That's a late discussion. Most of the church never dealt with that. That wasn't part of their thinking. So they left that out. So whoever wrote our doctrinal statement, our founding fathers, I use that term colloquially not to speak of gender, because we have had women pastors in our history, by the way. They were 102, 103 years old. But whoever wrote that statement was very careful to stay over here and not over here. And I love our doctrinal statement for that reason. So this is just one simple way. If we want to form practice, and we're going to start getting some practice in a couple weeks on how to think theologically, this is one very simple way to approach it. If it's, if it's a minor or an uncommon teaching, enjoy it, have fun with it, figure out what was going on because you're going to see how God is redemptive, but avoid, if you can, making policy on it. Okay, what do you think about that? Thoughts? What's this idea right here? So he gives us free will to think. <coughs> right. Right. Most of the church splits, if you look, occur because of this. You ever have a church split over loving one another? There's probably been one or two over the Trinity. I don't know of any, but I'm sure there has been one or two. But there's a ton that have that have uh, that have split over this and over this. This is where the this is where the church gets into fights, and I think that I think the greatest gift we can give the people here in our county and in our church is let's just relax about that part of it. But let's let's die for this. This is worth it. This is worth it. That was important enough that the Spirit inspired the authors of Scripture to, for all of them to talk about it. All of them. So it becomes very common. Okay? Yeah, but the question, the, the question that he asks is, the things on the common, there is some degree of differing opinion on that. There are. And what I tend to go back to, this is where I bring church tradition into it, because the Trinity has been held to since uh, Athanasius. Uh, the Orthodox Church is held to the Trinity. There are groups today that are trying to fragment the Trinity. They don't believe in the deity of Christ, or they don't believe in the Spirit as an individual person. Um, starting with the early church, they ruled that as heretical. And we hold to that in our doctrinal statement. That is heretical. You move down here, Jesus, you have the current trend. You may have seen any, some of you have watched some of the shows on the historical Jesus movement and um, the Jesus seminar. 
So Jesus Seminar came along and said, uh, let's try to figure out what Jesus' real words are. How many of you have a red-letter Bible? And here, let me see your hands. Okay, you're all heretics. You know where the red-letter Bible came from? <coughs> University of Tübingen. German scholars in the 19th century said they began to uh, demythologize or unspiritualize Scripture. And they said, let's put the words of Jesus in red because everybody will naturally think they're more important than the ones that are in black. That began the journey of, of taking apart Scripture. So all of you with a red-letter edition, isn't your natural thing to look at red and assume it's more important? Right? Yeah, get rid of it. They're all the same. It's all equally inspired. But that's the natural process that we go through in Scripture. I use a red-letter edition only because I know Jesus said something. I can find it faster in a red-letter edition than I can when it's all black. They're all Scripture is equally inspired. So that began a whole attack on how who Jesus was. So they began to take out of the Scripture to isolate sayings of Jesus that could not be attributed to Jesus. All right? So maybe John is saying Jesus meant something. Well, let's take that out. Or um, they say that Jesus was a peasant. He wasn't trained, and the New Testament says that. So let's take out his teachings where it shows that he was trained because he obviously wasn't, so we pull that out. So what are they left with? They're left with a little bit of language. They actually did us a very great service, and they said, see, Jesus was just a peasant. We don't know what he's talking about because it forced us to stand up and say, whoa, we better defend that. But there's a whole movement in scholarship today to debunk who Jesus is, but we don't buy that because Orthodox Christianity has held to the historical person of Jesus as well as the deity of Jesus as part of the Trinity. So, yes, there are, there are groups that go after it, but as a church, we don't embrace that. If you happen to get connected via a book that you're reading or a TV show or a friend that, you know, that's fine. Have fun with it. Come talk to me or Mark and, and uh, we'll help you think it through. So that is p our training is to understand all of that. So we have, we have, compared to this side over here, Alex, we have very little controversy in the Orthodox Church on the what's common. It does. It does. As a story. Think first and foremost as a story. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not arguing that every day of your life you should do this level of Bible study. That's not it. Approach it first and foremost as a story. In fact, when you get into the passages that you don't know what to do with, and there are tons of them, that's okay. As long as you've got the storyline down, that's okay. And the basic story is the mission of God. That's why that third leg is missional analysis. What's the mission of God? You've heard me say this. My seminary professors asked me this. You're on an airplane, and you look at the person next to you and say, what's that book about? They say, oh, it's a novel. They look at you and say, what's that book about? How do you answer it? My gosh, it's got everything in it. Here's how I answer it, and it's a statement of the mission of God. This book is about the one true living God who interacts with his creation in such a way that all of his creation will worship him alone as God. Every verse I can fit under that rubric, that umbrella. So get the basic story, what we call the meta-narrative that explains all of Scripture. If you get the basic story down, then you can begin to start dancing and playing with all these texts. Okay? 
You read Genesis, and all of a sudden, Judah's having an affair with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. She thinks he thinks she's a prostitute in Genesis, right? The end of Genesis. What's that all about? You have the storyline up to Joseph being sold into slavery, and then Joseph's in slavery. And right in the middle, he sticks a chapter in that's se- seemingly disconnected. How is that? If you get the overall story, you begin to say, oh, that's why that's there. It tells us something. We learn something later on about Judah because of that chapter. No, I don't think I don't think I'm trying to say that. What I'm trying to say with this with this leg is this is in part of the Bible study to understand the cultural background as much as you can of any given passage. Pick a passage and let's look at the cultural background. Then you can understand what God is getting to redeem. So it's not a statement about today, ethics today. It's a statement about what God was doing at a point in time back then. Any other thoughts or questions on this? This whole approach? The average person doesn't know the culture. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of thoughts. One is, I'm giving you the tools so you can hold Mark and me accountable. Okay? <coughs> so that we don't want this to be the Jim and Mark show. And in most churches it is. Whatever the pa- pastor says kind of goes. We don't want that. I just fundamentally do not believe that's what the church should be about. So when we talk to you and we explain things and we do the work, we, we want to be gifts. This is our gifts. We want to be a gift to the church. That's what you're paying us for, to be a gift. So let us be a gift. And then you guys get to use your common sense because we teach you the principles and it makes sense to you or it doesn't make sense to you. And quite honestly, uh, the elders are my number one check and balance against... Um, they're my number one check and balance against how accurate an interpretation or a theology is. And Mark and I are always watching the eyes of the elders. If we make a statement and they all go, eh, then we go, whoops, <laughs> we're going down the wrong alley. Well, you'll see why in a minute, why I believe that. But because they've been believers for a long period of time and they have watched the Lord work, it should not, our interpretation should not violate how we have seen the Lord at work. So I'm teaching you that for the first thing, just so that you guys provide us a healthier communion. You know what to do. Second of all, I'm teaching it to you because I want you to learn to ask the right questions. Even if you don't know how to get to the answer, if you ask the right questions, that will lead you down the right direction. If you don't ask the questions, you become anachronistic. That means you take our values of today and you feed them back into a text from 2,000 years ago, and you distort its meaning. So if you know the questions to ask, number one, you can look it up. You can call Mark or me or send us an email. I still have students sending me emails. What does this mean from all over the world? Okay, 
So you can ask us, and that's okay. We don't mind that. You can go research it if you want, or you could just let it go and say, I don't know the answer, but that's okay. I don't need to know the answer. Because you're approaching it the right way. And Bible study is 90, 90, 90% plus asking the right questions of the text. It really is. Some of the newer study Bibles are starting to come out with cultural analysis, cultural work done. You bet. Absolutely. When I'm studying, a lot of times, I, I often study online. <coughs> I have a, a very good online program. So I'm looking at, a, uh, looking at a text. I just flip to another one, flip to another one, flip to another one, translation. And immediately I can see what the issues are by how they translate it. And then they often will put footnotes on why I did it this way, why they did it that way. And I can compare it and I just do the issues become crystallized within within minutes of me. I do it on my phone. Here. I mean, w- the world we live in today, I have twice as many books on this as I have in my library, in my office. It's fantastic. I can just flip back and forth, pee-pee-pee, and get through the issues very quickly. So, so yeah, in some respects, it's hard. We're going to look at some. I brought some works here, but I made copies for you. This is what's called a Bible background commentary of the New Testament written by Greg Keener. Just about every verse in the Bible... You know, it's got, you know, every verse has a little paragraph, blah, blah, blah. This is the background, blah, blah, blah. This is the background, blah, blah, blah. And I, l- I mean, this, I live by this. I'm always, I start here. I know Craig Keener. I know him to be a trustworthy scholar. And there's an Old Testament version, which I have as well. So it, it makes it easy. And with the Internet, so much of the stuff that wasn't available even 10 years ago to is so available today if you want to do the work. But I understand that you guys are busy and you don't have time to do the work. Like like what I'm like what we do, so Mark and I are good with that. We're not trying to drive you to do this level of work. We're trying to drive you to ask the right questions, so that when you come up to us, you can ask us questions, and then you know we we may or may not have done the research. So fifty percent of my time, I probably spend five, at least five hours a week, maybe ten hours a week, reading just in cultural backgrounds, and I've been doing that for now almost twenty years, because I want to know. I mean, that's my area of specialty. And, and honestly, you hired me for partly for that. So I want to help you get better at understanding what God is doing and why texts are saying the things that they are. Okay? Okay, let's, go, let's move into the notes just a little bit further before we get into the text. Roman numeral 2. Where we talk about a framework of interpretation of El Roman numeral two is to us. Okay, once you have made an interpretation, here's what I think the text says. How do you know if you're right? Um, <coughs> by the way, this is not black and white. This is this is mushy. It's messy, you know. And o- honestly, it involves it involves dialogue. It involves discussion. It involves bringing things out into the out onto the surface. And so. I have developed for my own self what I call a framework of interpretation. I didn't make that up. That comes from uh, Miroslav Volf. He's a theologian out of Yale, very good theologian out of Yale University. Can anything get out of Yale? Come out of Yale? Apparently so. You know, solid believer, writing excellent stuff. So he has developed his own, and I've taken some of his work, but I've modified it, add to it, so it did, made it my own. And this is a, a framework of interpretations is a set of convictions about God in the Bible that guide our interpretation that I'm never going to violate. 
If my interpretation violates any one of these principles, then I know it's probably wrong. It's off the mark. Okay? Um, <coughs> all of my interpretations are subject to these convictions. And um, the convictions I'm about to give you are this framework that doesn't occur in any particular order. They just, these are the things that guide my interpretation. I always stay within these boundaries, if you will. The first one is the mission of God. The story is first and foremost about the mission of God. If it leads us to move away from the mission of God, then I reject it as a viable interpretation. Okay, so wherever I am in Scripture when I'm doing an interpretation, does it fit within the overall story of what God is doing? The second thing is what I call a multi-layered approach. <coughs> a multi-layered approach. And that's what I just taught you as a three-legged stool is we have to take into account the context, the redemptive movement of God, the various genres, some of its poetry, some of its narrative, some of its history, some of its gospels, some of its apocalyptic, on and on and on. The genres all serve a certain purpose. Don't try to take the parables as promises. They're not. Okay? Train up a child in the way they should go. When they're old, they will not depart from it. That is not a promise, contrary to the books that have that in it. That's a parable. It's a, it's a proverb, which is a general truth, but it is not a die-hard principle. So to older parents, don't beat yourself over the head because you did what was right and your kids didn't come back to the Lord. It doesn't work that way. Your children still have free will. A multi-layered approach. The third thing is tradition. I believe in listening carefully to how the church has read and lived Scripture in the past. We are a communion of saints for 2,000 years. And the people that came before us are not stupid. Some of the most brilliant scholars occurred in the first 300 years. These are the guys that uh, they not only interpreted Greek, they spoke it. That was their language. They were well-trained. They, they were second and third generation Christians from the apostles. We should listen to them. We should pay attention to them. But at the same time, tradition tells us where we have come from, and Scripture tells us where we should go. So we never give the church fathers authority over Scripture. So just because a church father has a statement and we decide to disagree with it, that's okay. Let's just take into account what they're saying. In other words, let's enter into dialogue with them much like we do with us today. So we enter into a discussion, and maybe a couple of you have an interpretation of us don't agree with. That's okay. Well, we may talk about what Tertullian says or Origen or any of the early ones, even Marcion, who was considered a heretic. He has some good stuff. Uh, Augustine, we may look at them, and we may decide that based on what we know today, we don't agree with their interpretation, but let's at least pay attention to it. So I do that. Mark does that. Mark's far better at this than I am because that's actually his area of interest. He's done tons of reading. I've done tons of reading in cultural backgrounds. He's done tons of reading in church history. So whenever I have a church history question, I just walk Mark to his office. Mark, what does Augustine think about this? Blah, brr, sweet, okay, now I know. Um, the next one is meaning and double horizons. What do you mean by double horizons? Here's what I mean. Technically, it's called social location. I have a location within a very specific social context that drives all that I think. It's called U.S. West American Colorado. And now I've even refined it further. Summit County. Because you guys think different than all my friends on the, uh, down in, the, in Denver. We have our own little culture subgroup here. And we think we're right. 
makes me laugh. <laughs> so I have a very specific location within society, social location it's called, that dictates how I view the world and I drive it. Paul had a very, and the authors of scripture had a very specific social location. So there are two horizons, that's what the, that's what the technical literature calls it, in view at any given time. The world, the ancient world of the authors and the recipients, and the modern world of the readers and interpreters. That's what that means. Just always be sensitive to the fact that you are culturally conditioned. You can't get out of that. Don't try. Don't claim that you're objective because you're not. None of us are. That's why the community is so important. Because we, we begin to get closer to objectivity if we are all talking about it. That's why I move away from, let me teach and you listen and uh, take what I say as gospel and move on. No, don't do that. Don't be challenging. I love the people that come to me and say, I disagree with you. Mary Ellen Gillen is one of my favorite people. She's done that more than anybody else in the church. I don't know if I buy that. Sweet, that's what I say. Tell me what you don't buy. Because it forces me to say, what do I think about this? This weird or not? And uh, she's a gold nugget <coughs> to me. So we have... Just be aware that you are not objective. You cannot be. You are going to be subjective every step of the way. Um, <coughs> the next one is, uh, oh, no, no, let me add one little piece to this. Um, with the idea of meaning and um, the idea of social location or double horizon, if you think of the New Testament a little different than you have in the past, some of you have seen this before, it might help you with this particular area. You have the Old Testament being written, okay? And you have Israel. You have the scriptures addressed to one ethnic group. Just one. Even the prophecies about Babylon and all that, they're not given to Babylon. So the, um, the Assyrians have no idea that our God prophesied about them, even though it's written to the Assyrians. So to the Assyrians, I say, well, give it to Israel. So the, the Bible was written to Israel to help them understand their world. Then you have the cross, and you have the most amazing thing. You have the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then you have the fulfillment to Abraham, where the New Testament moves ethnically in a whole variety of directions. So Romans is written to Italians. Corinthians is written to Greeks. Titus is written to uh, Crete. Uh, Timothy is written to Ephesus. Philippians is written to uh, Asia Minor, Turkish people. So you see the point? That, that starting, picture a prison. Starting in Acts 8.1, God scattered the church. One nation after another started to come to know Christ. One ethnic group after another. And so the New Testament gives us the first truly multicultural model a way of thinking about culture, ethnic groups, plurality. Don't buy what you hear in the world today. Just go back and take a look. And so what happens is now we get back to the common teaching. The common teaching that's spread out among all of these is what should drive our, our core as a church, our values, the things that we will die for. The uncommon teachings, let them go. Let them go. I mentioned some. Here are some others. You know, in Corinth, Paul says, I want the young widows to remarry. But then in uh, Romans, he said, I want the young widows. Uh, I mean, in Romans, he says, uh, 
Yeah, you're arguing my point for me that the message of Scripture is very simple. It's the mission of God. And I like that. But you still have to make sense of all those other passages. You can't just disregard them. They're still important. What I'm trying to do is give you a framework for saying why they're important, and it's not to drive our behavior. The reason why all those other passages are important is to make sense of that simple message that God we serve a God who loves us and he is pursuing us at all costs. And I literally mean that. He gave up the only thing uh, he did not create, his son. We should focus on the core, that common teaching, because if it's, if it's present all throughout here, then it's obviously very important. So this gives us a way of taking core truth about Christianity and moving into culture because we see it modeled. So I told the elders, here's what I do with that. I've got one more down here called Summit County. Our job as elders and pastors are to say, how do we bring this wonderful truth, this common set of teaching here in a way that's culturally relevant? And we have all these models to help us do that. So when you read uh, when you read through the New Testament next time, be aware that you're reading epistles to different cu- different cultures, different ethnic groups, and see what pops up. So why does Paul use certain words when he's talking to Turkish people, but he doesn't use the same words when he's talking to Jews? Change your vocabulary. See, it doesn't really fit in their culture, right? So why don't we apply? Why don't we apply the verse that women should wear? head coverings. Well, because there is a very specific problem in this culture right here that that addressed. 
when I, I came I came and spoke to mops with two other pastors um, about a month ago. Were any of you here for that? Any of the mops people here? Okay, you know what the first question was? Three of us were sitting up here in chairs. All these mops moms, all these young moms with all these kids running around. It's great. They said, uh, the first question is, what do you do with 1 Corinthians 11 and women wearing head coverings? Why don't we do that today? <laughs> wow. You have all these little kids running around, all the pressures of life, and that's your first question? <laughs> Wasn't that the first question? It was. It was great. It was great. Why don't you do it? We have to have an answer to that. You see, it's important not to drive our behavior. Scripture's not there to always drive our behavior. It's there to create a world for us of understanding who God is. We have to understand who God is, and it's right here. And if God is going to take care of the temple prostitutes in Corinth, then he's going to take care of us in some account. And so to, to me, Christianity and theology is a gold mine. It's a, it's a treasure hunt. We're looking for how to make this work right here. So that's part of my thinking. Another one is uh, what I call a hermeneutic of respect, and that's as opposed to a hermeneutic of suspicion. I, sus- I approach the Bible with the idea that it is God's word, it's inspired, it has authority, and I respect it. I'm not there to be suspicious and tear it apart. Now, I'm critical, but that's different. Okay, I'm a critical scholar, which means I do tear it apart, but not for the purpose of undermining it. Many churches today, many some in our county, are start with a hermeneutic of suspicion. It cannot be trusted. I think it can. So I approach it from that Another one is the Trinitarian grounding. Everything I do relates to the Trinity. It's the core from which all my theology flows out. The way you treat each other is a reflection to the world of the Trinity because the Trinity created us and taught us how to live in relationship because the Trinity lives in relationship. So everything we do, if we start to divide and backstab, guess what? We are misrepresenting the Trinity to the world. If we forgive one another and we run to each other's aid and we show compassion, then we are representing the Trinity to the world around us. So if in any direction it begins to undermine the Trinity, then I move away from it. I'll give you one example. I know this is very controversial. You may have a different opinion, and that's okay with me. Um, We don't have to agree, but this is how I approach it because of my Trinity, Trinitarian background. In... um, In... Uh, Ephesians, Paul says that uh, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. A lot of of controversy around this. Since Christ does have authority, that must mean authority. Okay? Okay. The word head must mean authority. We'll get to this later on in the class, what is it actually talking about, but we may use that as an example. But I want to illustrate my Trinitarian teaching coming out here. 1 Corinthians 11 adds another part to the triad. God is the head of Christ. Now, if we believe that the word head means authority, then we just introduced subordinationism within the Trinity which Athanasius argued and successfully developed the principle that that's heresy. So 
our doctrinal statements today say the Trinity, equal in power and glory. There is no subordination within the Trinity. They serve on equal footing. So if this has to do with authority, then this, in my position here, introduces subordination within the Trinity, and I don't believe that. Therefore, the word head has to mean something different because I don't believe in subordinationism within the Trinity. So there's an example of how my Trinitarian belief uh, dictates my interpretation. So if I come to the conclusion that head relates to authority, my Trinitarian thought kicks in and says, wait a minute, I can't get there. What's that? I've studied the Trinity. So the Trinity has become one of my, part of that framework of interpretation. Anything that threatens the doctrine of the Trinity, I reject. Just outright. Wouldn't this be a part of it? Um, Well, some people try to argue that. Those that argue that husbands have authority over the wives also also argue subordination within the Trinity. But the early church ruled that out, ruled that as a heresy. So almost every church I know of today that has a doctrinal statement has some language in there about we believe in the Trinity equal in power and glory. There is no subordination within it. So that's our that's our position. That's my position doctrinally. So here I have a doctrinal position on the Trinity which guards my interpretation. So I'm just trying to use it as an example of how important the Trinity is to me as part of that that uh, fence, if you will, that protects the interpretation that we come up with. The next one is formation or Christian formation. Um, the Bible introduces a compelling way of life that is at its core theological, and that true theology can only effectively be done within the pursuit of life. So as we study the scriptures, it should change us. It should form us. It's called Christian formation. If it doesn't form us, and instead it produces controversy, there's something wrong. Right off the bat, there's something wrong. We should just pause, take a deep breath, back up and say, what's going on here? It should be compelling. We can back up. What came out of this position? <coughs> the word Trinity comes from a Latin word. Okay? So the verbalization of the of the God as a Trinity was a little bit later in church history, but the all the principles that led to the the, the expression of that are present in scripture. They didn't go outside to philosophy. They're all present in there. 
So I and the Father are one. Okay? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I could go down a long list of passages where Jesus argued that he was God. And, uh, and the Pharisees got it because they tried to stone him half the way through, you know, almost all the way through for that. So the early church, right off the bat, they began to recognize, okay, something's different here. Um, we believe in one God. We still do because Jesus Christ affirmed it. So did Paul. We believe that God is one. So did James. They all affirmed it in the New Testament, but yet they are distinctly different. Jesus is different from the Father, and he claims to be God as well. So that threw the early church for a loop as they began to make sense of it. And as they began to wrestle through that, then they began to go back and say, wait a minute, let's go back and look again. Oh, the Spirit says the same thing. The Spirit explicitly says, doesn't say the Father says, but Jesus says the Spirit says. The Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Oh, wait a minute. All of a sudden you have the Spirit with his own identity as well uh, being shaped within their writing. So the, the authors wrote the basic facts of the story, and then the early church fathers began to formulate doctrine. What do we believe around that? A doctrinal statement is really a, uh, a, a, an encrypted statement of what we believe. How do we express it? So the doctrine of the Trinity is a later expression by a couple hundred years, but the theology of the Trinity is rooted deeply in the New Testament. Well, that's different than having authority. Because they all submit to each other. So I can, I can demonstrate through passages that they all, at various times, they all submit to each other in the Trinity. So the idea of submitting is not the same thing as someone having authority over you. That's a very important distinction to make in male-female relations. Okay? As a wife, you can choose to submit, but there's nothing in Scripture that says a husband has authority over you. And by the way, mutual submission is the norm in the church. So we should submit to one another, but that doesn't mean any that you have authority over me or each other. So don't get that little part confused. That's a that's a part that gets twisted in the wrapped around the axle in this discussion. Okay, if somebody has authority over you, you have no option but to submit, submit or die. But we've been given freedom in Christ, therefore submission now becomes a gift that we offer someone else because they don't have authority over specifically. Absolutely. Galatians 3, in Christ there is neither male nor female. That basic premise is what led our nation away from slavery. Okay? You see it in the early founding of our documents. We believe all, and I've heard it argued, it drives me nuts, we believe all men are created equal. Must be talking about men. No, no, no. Mankind is the general word. We believe everyone is created equal and should be given equal opportunity. That's the founding of our country at its root. Equality. Now, it's taken us an awful long time to figure out what that looks like to get there. But that's, you know, think of Galatians 3. In Christ, there is neither male nor female, slave nor free. You are Gentiles. We're all one in Christ. 
That's his conclusion. Okay, so... The newer translations are moving away from the gender-exclusive language and moving toward gender sensitivity or gender-inclusive language, which I really like. Now, it has nothing to do with culture today. It has everything to do with, with what's written in Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. That's the original language. There was a teaching for a while in the church that uh, Christ gave gifts, Ephesians 4, he gives spiritual gifts to men. And those gifts are apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and elders. So pastor, the gift of pastor goes to men. Unless you're a Greek scholar and you look and you say, no, no, that's a word for humanity. <laughs> and so now in the newer translations, he gave, he gave gifts to people, men and women alike. Okay, so Christian formation, our, our theology should be compelling. And if it's not, and if it's not compelling, I know that's subjective, but if it's not compelling, honestly, I stop. Say, pause. Hold on a minute. Because the model I see all the way through Scripture is the, is, are the authors and the apostles and Jesus are pushing the envelope in culture constantly to bring new and fresh ideas to a broken world. And uh, it should be compelling. So if it's not compelling, I pause and say, that, stop. Back up. Take a look at it. Another one is uh, <coughs> community-oriented and liturgically grounded. Okay? Those are connected ideas. In other words, our interpretation should fit within our life of faith. It should make sense within the community and our liturgy. The way we live out our faith in the worship service is the gathered part of the church. It should make sense. And one of the things I'm work working with now, the, the staff, and I've raised it with the elders, is we don't have any we don't have any ways of connecting our current doctrinal statement to life so we say okay we believe in the trinity so where's the trinity ever talked about if we don't connect our doctrinal statement to life our practice then it just becomes an academic discussion and it's no longer compelling theology so you've heard me for instance around communion routinely at least once a month introduce the, the trinity into the communion you've heard that right the cup is the the uh is the new covenant which is the sending of the spirit so you have jesus and you have the spirit so you hear me bringing trinity into communion and i occasionally reference it up front that that our relationship is like trinity so there's one of the ways i'm trying to bring one of our doctrinal statements into the life of the church so that you begin to connect the dots and you begin to say, you know, the way we treat one another is absolutely critical. It really is. If I start gossiping about you, I'm undermining the, the message of the Trinity who loves us to the people around me. So just an example. Community-oriented, it occurs within the community and it's liturgically grounded. It has to, it has to be lived out within the life of the church. All of our interpretation of theology um, has to be lived out. Our life and the way we practice as a church should reflect it. 
So do you believe, do you honestly believe that uh, when you put money in the collection plate, do you believe that that's an, a statement of the, what you believe about the gospel? That's what Paul said in the Corinthian epistles, that your offering is a reflection of how you feel about the gospel. Do you really believe that? Well, that connection for most of you has never been made, is my guess. You're just asked to give. And you're asked to give a little more for you know, financial trouble. Forget all that. Let's, let's go back to our theology that when you put something in the offering basket, that's a statement of what you believe about the gospel. And so if an unbeliever comes in, that is a statement of witness or testimony. When people come into our church that are kind of wondering about Christ, I want them to look around and say, holy smokes, these people believe this. Look at the money they're giving. I don't go anyplace else in the world where people do this. Right? Because it's a statement of our belief in the gospel. So our theology should be worked out within our life practice as a church. We should connect the dots. Another one is appropriate scholarship. Biblical scholarship is a gift from the Lord called teacher. Enjoy it. I'm not the only one. Mark's not the only one. There's several sitting right here in this group. We have several teachers in this church. Biblical scholarship is appropriate. It's a gift of God to the church. I recognize that you can't do what I do. You know, you can. You just can't because of life circumstances. Because you all have another chosen career. This is my chosen profession. So you pay me to do this. And I am very grateful, by the way. Because many churches pay their pastors and their expectations have nothing to do with scholarship. And so pastors quit growing. And the world around us is changing because we learn more and more. So I am, I am very grateful to this church that you send me to conferences, you, you buy books for me, you expect me to sit at my desk and read and study and stay current. Mark and I, we are convinced we died and went to heaven. <laughs> but I know that that's not your passion, many of you, nor do you have the capacity in life to do it. That's why we like to be a gift and turn around and bring it back to you in the form of teaching. So all of our theology should be nuanced by scholarship. We should pay attention. This is the broader community and church at work. So I read Craig Keener. You know, I read uh, Trevor Burke and I read Joel Green and Lee McDonald and all these guys. I read them. I know them. I meet them at conferences and we talk about these things. So that's another one. Is what does scholarship have to say about it? Let's ask that question. What does the rest of the church say? We don't want to be a lone, a lone ranger out here. We don't. So, as an example, discussion of the role of women. By my calculations mathematically, only about 5% of the church worldwide even, even has an issue with it. The British scholars laugh at the American scholars because we talk about the role of women. It's not, they're thinking, what in the world are you doing? So much energy on this. In, in Great Britain, it's not, it's not an issue in any country I've been in other than here. That means something to me if the scholars around the different countries have all come to the same conclusion, and most of the scholars in America have come to the conclusion, I come from a tradition that says something different, all of a sudden, now that I'm trained, I pause and say, hold on a minute here. I better rethink my position here. I better be absolutely sure I'm right if 90% of the church is disagreeing with me. See how I bring scholarship into it? This is just an example. And then the last one is what I call trustworthy intuition. As the community matures, their theological intuition matures as well. 
The best example of that in any church should be the elders, the leaders. Our elders are all godly men who have served and walked with the Lord. They may not be biblical scholars, but they recognize the Lord's voice. They know it. They see it. It just intuitively makes sense to them. So that's why when I bring teachings out to you, I'm very careful on Sunday morning. I always pay attention. Mark and I talk about it regularly. How did the congregation respond? Sometimes he stands in the back and watches. If he's up front, I'm in the back. And we're paying attention to how you respond. Because um, trustworthy intuition grows as your relationship with the Lord grows. And I trust you. I trust our elders implicitly. If I make a statement about theology and they all kind of go, huh, I pause and say, oh, time to back up. Let's explore this a little more. I listen to them. So I pay attention to what you do as well. So your comments to me, okay, when I make a comment up there, uh, here's what it's worth thus far, and I praise God for this. Um, I make a statement up there, and this table gripes, and the rest of you say, sweet. And then I make a statement next week, and this table gripes, and everyone, including that one, says, sweet. And I make a statement the third week, and that group back there gripes, and the rest of you say, sweet. All right, as long as the griping is moving along. <laughs> okay? And uh, because we're a community church, that's exactly what happens. Uh, when I stand up there, I think, boy, oh boy, the Baptists are not going to like what I'm about to say next. <laughs> and then next week, it's former Catholics are not going to feel comfortable with this. You know, next week, ah, oh, the Presbyterians, oh boy. <laughs> that's what happens when I'm, when I'm up front teaching. And that's okay. As long as, it's, as long as it's a minority group that's uncomfortable and it's moving around, if the whole church says, wait a second, then... I pause. I need to recheck my interpretation because you folks are very important. You get it? Okay, so that's my framework of interpretation. Every interpretation I, I do, I, I fit within these categories and make sure this is my check, if you will, check and balance. Make sure it works. Any questions on this before we start practicing? Praise God, absolutely. It should be. It should be. Culture should impact our interpretation. It doesn't drive it, but it should impact it. Okay? So we should always be in dialogue with culture. And we should always listen. I, I think I mentioned last week, if not, if, if I'm repeating myself, I'm getting old, just remember that. Um, that Michael Polanyi wrote a book on the physics of riding a bicycle, and he, uh, when he got done riding, ah, when he got done riding his bike, uh, ri riding the book on how to ride a bicycle, he said, you know no, no more about riding a bicycle now than you did when you started. The only way to learn to ride a bicycle is, um, this is a second handout, by the way, is to get on your bike and skin your knees. And his point was that our theology does not drive our emotions and our experiences. Our experiences drive our interpretation of theology. Because the Bible can't teach you the core values of life. It can't teach you what a good marriage is about. You have to experience it. It can give you principles to understand it, to validate it, and to make sense of why you got to have that experience, but it can't give you the experience. Only life can give you the experience. So we are in constant dialogue with our experience and culture. 
This one. You need to be louder. <laughs> uh huh. Then you write your own framework of interpretation and you do this. What would you use? <laughs> yeah, that's that's why it's very subjective here. Sure I do. I absolutely do. I'm I'm Mark and I Mark and I are very careful with the words that we use and we grade each other. So when we start a series, we sit down and talk about language because language is what creates culture. And so what word do we want to use, right? So for instance, we have chosen to move away from the word sin. You hardly ever hear it from the pulpit, hardly ever. And it's usually a slip-up. Why? Is it a bad word? No. It's just not compelling. It doesn't mean what it used to. What does sin mean in our culture today? It means whatever you're doing is worse than whatever I'm doing. So we've totally lost the biblical concept of sin, so we use the word brokenness. That was by design. What does brokenness communicate? We're all equal. Everyone. Everyone. That's the truth. We are all equally broken, equally depraved. And so if I use the word sin, then that, that brings in a whole different spectrum of meanings from the generations. So the way the older generations would hear it is different than the way the younger generations hear the word. So we moved away from it because it's no longer compelling. It doesn't effectively communicate what we want communicated. So there's one example. So we absolutely change all the time. We're always dancing with our language to make sure that, first of all, we're in agreement, he and I. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, we were sitting there talking and realized that we're communicating two different messages. So we went back to the drawing board and said, okay, let's, say, let's talk through the theology, which we did, and now we came up with a common language, okay, which you're hearing is a common language. Yeah, but keep in mind, this is a framework from which, which I judge and evaluate my interpretation. It doesn't drive it. Okay, my interpretation is rooted first and foremost in the Bible, and then this framework of interpretation is like a fence that protects the interpretation. Okay, and so the whole compelling piece is just one out of ten. It's only one. So if, in fact, uh, I can't make it more compelling, no big deal. I'll move on. It's just a, I think of it as a fence that keeps me from moving out into the realms of heresy or irrelevance or cultural accommodation, all those places, what you're referring to. The fence is what keeps me inside there. But it's rooted first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a Bib studied guy. My training from the ground up. It depends on what it is. If it has to do with pay, I have the authority. <laughs> if we were to come across, uh, by the way, we do have differences. There's places where we don't agree in theology, and we laugh at each other. Oh, we have a lot. He goes up. There you go again. I know you're going to beat that horse, you know. <laughs> so we dance, and we play with each other, and we have fun with it because none of it's core stuff. It, 
say, you don't know if God has what now? Yeah, you don't. God. We talked about that last week. I actually lived by that principle. I don't have a fish on my car, and that's the reason, quite honestly. <laughs> I have free will, right? I don't ever put that in the same camp as authority. I have free will to choose. But there's lots of examples in Scripture where guys, where men and women of free will went, went against the grain with God, and God eventually got their attention. So when we talk about authority of Scripture, we're really talking as shorthand for the authority of God as expressed through Scripture. So God is the one that has authority. That's why I start with the Bible. But just to protect my interpretation, I've created this framework that I live within and run it by these tests. And if, and if it doesn't meet the test, then I stop and say, let's be cautious here. I'd be moving into an area that's not, that's not right. Okay. What I handed you, uh, don't use yet. Okay? Don't even start reading it yet. We're going to have a little bit of fun here. Um... I want you to turn to Matthew 18 and just read the first five verses and then at your table, just talk for a minute about what that means. No, 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 better yet, we'll save time. Read it and tell me what it means. I'll let you do your work at your table in a different way. Matthew 18. Matthew 18, the first five verses, well known to you. Talking about children. think of the world we live in today and you read this passage about children, what comes to mind? What things float to the surface? Innocence? Okay. And children bring a sense of innocence about them? Trust? Tell me about that. What do you mean? Okay, children have trust in their parents, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Okay, so what are you, how does that connect with this passage when you read it? Think about that for a moment. 
Okay? So dependence. Powerless. Ooh. Who said that? Spoken like a true teacher. Hold on. I had to learn that when I became a pastor. I can't give you exams. You don't pay for this. Can't hold you accountable. I'm powerless. <laughs> okay. What else? Helpless. if that's how you spell it or no. I love, I love uh, spell check. <laughs> What's that? Judged. People are, our children are judged. Interesting. Okay. You think what? You think they stumble. What do you mean by that? Give me an example of that. So how does that connect with your interpretation of this? That children stumble. Okay. Children lack cynicism and they're brutally honest. Okay. Interesting. Okay. These are, go ahead. Children are eager to learn. Mm. Okay, what I did was I copied a page. You have one. At the top it says Matthew 18. I just wanted to illustrate, you have the book there. This is from the Bible Background Commentary. Uh, by the way, I have whole books on children, understanding children in the first century world. So what I did was I just went there and just copied one paragraph and marked it off. Just read that for a moment. What I want you to do with this is tell me which of these ideas up here fit with that description. What's that? Okay, so powerless. Think for just a moment with me about children in the first century world. 
Um, children were just about the lowest on the social structure, including below slaves. And the reason is because in a shame and honor context, which we are not in in our world, we have a little bit of it, but it doesn't dominate or control. In a shame and honor context, um, if you bring dishonor on your family, you have dishonored the family forward and backward. So children, the biggest fear with children was that they would dishonor because you don't know what they're going to do. So they weren't thought of in these other categories which we think of today. They were loved, but they were expected to toe the line. You could kill them. That's part of the Mosaic Law, by the way. If your child disobeys you, you're allowed to stone him. That was part of Roman law. You could do that with your children. They're property. It's better to kill them than to let them dishonor you. Okay? Doesn't that sound very foreign to our world? So when we begin to remove (coughs) 21st century feelings about children, Now go back and read the passage. What is he saying? Lest you change to become like little children. We have the picture of Jesus welcoming little children, right? That sort of thing. And uh, we are sometimes guilty of, again, anachronism. We bring our values today back into the text. Child was the lowest in society, had the lowest value, had the lowest freedom, rights, had the lowest, uh, their expectations were very simple, do not sin. Boom. It changes us a little bit, doesn't it? We talk about a childlike faith and we're referring to innocence, aren't we, when we use that kind of language? Well, really, a childlike faith is more along the lines of that you're going to obey. You're going to live out your faith. You're willing to make yourself the lowest in society. You're willing to give up your rights because a child had no rights. You ever read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce? Some of you that are older, where the, uh, the, the bus from hell gets to visit heaven and they all go over there, and they, and they get into a conversation. Pretty soon, the people from hell say to the people in heaven, what about your rights? And the, Christian, and the Christians in heaven go, huh? Rights? What do you mean by rights? You don't have any rights. You don't have the right to freedom of speech. That's an American right. You don't have the right to confidentiality. That's an American legal right. So if you think about what what you are as a Christian, you have given up. Every metaphor used means you have lost your rights. <coughs> See how the meaning begins to shift a little bit when we when we distance ourselves from how we view children today and we put it in the context of what they might have heard? Just an example. Okay, let's take another one. Let's look at... Um, All right, the big pack, the big packet. It's stapled together. Okay, I'm going to read to you a section out of Romans 8. This is Romans 
through 17. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. All right. When you hear the word adoption, you have been adopted by God into His family, what comes to mind? What do you think? Okay. Hold on. Inheritance. Um, I'll say an unnatural belonging. Or alien, if you will. Okay. Chosen. Children. When you think of inheritance, you think of royalty? How so? Now, I'm not talking about, now you're reading, you're trying to theologize here. What do you think of when you think of adoption? Okay, and tell me how you get. Yeah, God is adopting you. So show me. Ah, okay, so status. All right, I'm with you now. Infants? Infants and children. What about your character? What comes to mind with adoption when it comes to character? Does anything pop up? How so? So risk. Hmm. Okay. Risk which requires patience. Okay. By the way, the purpose of these examples, we're working on cultural background. That's all we're focusing on is helping you to see what happens when you start to look at cultural backgrounds, the way people thought or received this message. Okay, now what I did was, this is a little bit longer thing. I tried to mark off what sections I want you to read. Okay, or I underlined some things along the way that stand out a little bit to get your attention. So I want you to read these at your table. Talk about these ideas. And again, let's figure out what was true in the first century and what's 21st century culture. So take some time and read those.
Kazuya Kamatsu. Especially interested in the port, the line, ones I underlined. This is an example of a PhD dissertation that has turned into a book. A little different example. So, if you want to read about the metaphor of adoption, there's a whole dissertation devoted to it. I actually read it. So, this is somebody who digs very deeply in one little tiny area to help us grasp the truth. Don't read the whole thing. It'll take you all night. Okay, start talking. What'd you get out of it? Okay, talk in this group right here. Share it. That's okay. No, that's okay. I'm interested. love this guy. I love what you're saying. Anything stand out that disagrees with our says so anything stand out that disagrees with our list? Or disagrees? Yeah. Who's adopted? Adults, not children. So it fits with their idea that children are the, they're not the ones adopted, are they? Ooh. 
complete opposite of our society. Children have rights. They have value. Bring that up when you, when you come up. Yeah. The metaphor is operating the opposite of what we think of. Like a good American. What disagrees with our list up here? What disagrees? Who is adopted? Okay, so no infants. Ooh, so the metaphor is op operating the opposite of our metaphor today. Right? <laughs> You could be killed. Right. Yeah. Huh. Okay. I like that. That explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> care I'm about to you ran out of time anyway so okay let me get your attention back up here okay what up here agrees here we have some 21st century ideas of adoption and then I was letting you do a little bit of reading into first century thoughts on adoption so what agrees on this list? Okay, inheritance. No, not unnatural. Chosen. Status. No, there's not. Who did they adopt? But why did they adopt adults? Because there's no risk. They adopted adults because now we're back in a shame and honor context. And the last thing you want to do is adopt a baby 
because you have no idea what they're going to turn out to be and they might bring dishonor. So they waited. They, I don't think we have a single example of them adopting children. They waited till you were an adult and often a much older adult to make sure that they had confirmed your character before they brought you into their family. So when we take out the 21st century ideas, what are we left with? I'm going to, I'll show you the, the basic way adoption works, okay? I have a slave. My slave has been faithful to me. I own him as property. He's a, he, he has been faithful to me for uh, 40 years. Done exactly everything I asked. And so I say to him, I'd like to adopt you as my son. What that means is you now receive all of the rights and privileges and inheritance and glory and wealth that are ascribed to me. And you also receive my family name so that you are perceived now as a natural born of part of my family. You're no longer a slave because I know your character and you've proven yourself to be trustworthy. You see it? Okay, now what does it say about God if he's adopting us? He knows your character before he adopted you. That's how the people in the first century would have seen that. He knew your character before he adopted you. What do you think of that? What's that? All right, don't get too theological. Talk, <laughs> talk practical. What does it mean? Does that, does that give you excitement or not? Did you hear that? <laughs> it's compelling. The only reason it looks like a risk to us, I think, is because of our use of the metaphor of adoption. All right? Because we don't know how a child's going to turn out. Okay? But if I knew, if I said, for instance, I'm going to hire Bruce, I mean, I'm going to uh, uh, adopt Bruce as my son, then I already know what I'm getting. I know what he's going to bring to my family. And because of that, I'm willing to share my glory, whatever there is, and my inheritance and my wealth with him. He becomes part of the family. But I know exactly what I'm going to get. How's the risk? Right, but on, the, but on the grand scale, is it riskier to adopt a baby or an adult? It's minuscule for adults. So do you see how this metaphor is, is, is operating in the opposite way than, a, than our modern metaphor of adoption, our practice of adoption? And they lived it out, by the way. The Romans only adopted adults. We have thousands of examples of adoption. They're all adults. Say that again. Yeah. 
it's the greatest gift of all, and there's, a, there's an underlying implicit idea because you are a broken, depraved human, there's an underlying message which is fleshed out in other places in Romans that God no longer looks at you as a wretched, broken person. He no longer sees you. So when you sin, he no longer sees it that way. He now sees you through the lens of the cross or through the work of Christ. So when he adopts you, if you take this metaphor and you, and you begin to flesh out these ideas, you see this, this, this principle is communicated in numerous places that uh, on the day he adopts you and you turn to him in faith, then he no longer sees you that way. You're now, to him, you're now redeemed. So Satan is accusing you 24 hours a day. Have you seen what Ron is about to do here? Did you see what Ron did last night? That's Satan. Okay? But here's what Jesus says. He just says, yeah, but, but it doesn't matter. Forget all that. He's covered under the blood. He's adopted. He's atoned for. It doesn't matter. It's like having diplomatic immunity. Why didn't you tell me that before the class? I could have used it. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, look at Job. There's a classic example. Look at Job. So where was the risk? God's boasting. Have you considered my servant Job? And he says, well, of course. Satan says, of course, because uh, you have your hedge of protection around him. He said, okay, sure. Just won't take his life. So he does, brrr, and then Satan comes back, and he says, uh, so God said so. If you consider my servant Job, apparently he's still faithful. And, uh, well, of course, because you won't let me touch his body. And God said, okay, you can touch his body. Just don't take his life. Bang. All kinds of bad things happen to him now physically, right? And in all this, Job did not sin. Why? The last statement of Job, he's shaking his fist at God in anger. Where are you? If you would listen to me, if you had the courage to listen to me, you would change your mind. So God appears in a whirlwind and says, all right, I love the older translation, gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Surely you must know. Little divine sarcasm. Sorry, kid. And he goes down this whole list for like two chapters, and then he gets to the real question. He didn't say that was Satan who did that to you. That would have been easy, because it was Satan. He said, Would you really annul my judgment? Would you really do that? God is the one that provokes Satan to do that. So he's held up in the New Testament as patience. A man of patience. Have you heard of the patience of Job? So there's a classic example right there. God already knew. He didn't have to worry about Job. God put, puts you in situations because he already knows what you're going to do. He doesn't worry about you. He knows your faith is okay. Even if you fail, your faith is okay. So David commits adultery, and then he murders the husband of his uh the woman he commits adultery with and marries her. And by the way, if you read it carefully, uh, he was one of David's best friends. He's one of the 30 mighty men. He went with David everywhere, his personal bodyguard. I mean, this guy was about as close to David as you could get. David stole his wife. After that, God calls him a man after my own heart. Because he sees us 
He doesn't see our sin. He sees us through the lens of the cross. We are redeemed. And that's what this metaphor is getting at here. That on the day God chose you to adopt, he already knew your character. See how the metaphor is completely different when you put it back in the first century world? Does that make sense? And hopefully that brings you a sense that's life-giving. Wow. What's that? It, yeah, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Because we know our own sinfulness, don't we? We live with it every day. But for those of you that are parents and children, don't you manage to overlook your children's sinfulness and love them anyway? You do it in a broken kind of way, but man, you can't get away from it, can you? You still love them. Well, think about a God who's perfect. So you see how this adoption metaphor is a very powerful metaphor in theology. So if God shows that kind of grace, then why don't we show, show, why don't we show that kind of grace with each other? It's not a risk. All right, you may sin. So what? Welcome to humanity. The whole, we've got it turned around backwards. We're focused on the behavior when God is focused on the soul and the character and the way we live our lives and conduct ourselves. What would happen if we were to turn that around? and say, let's overlook the behaviors for a little while. Let's let people be people and see what happens. And we treat people as priceless because they are. And we live with people. I asked the elders uh, two meetings ago, and I think Mark asked them at the last one, um, do you really want people in our church that uh, carry with them externally a lot of baggage? drug addicts, things like that. Do you really want those kind of people in our church? And they said, well, yeah, of course. And I said, what if they never change? What if the most they can be redeemed in this lifetime is to come to know Christ? Do you still want them? What do you think? It gets awful messy. We say, of course, but do we really? We're much more comfortable with an outsider. Most of us have not been in an environment where we have people that are far away from the cross. Let me just add this one thing. You've seen it before, some of you. Okay? Here's the cross. We typically think of church this way. We create boundaries. And we create identity. And if you fit, if you meet the guild, so to speak, you're inside. And if you don't, you're outside. So if you practice same-sex, you're obviously out here. If you're a drug addict, you're out here. If you got your life in order, you're, you've trusted in Christ, you're obviously in here. That's how the church in the West thought about it up through uh, my generation. Starting with all these young folks in here, they began to think differently, and they began to introduce a whole new model. What happens if you do this? If you do away with that, and you ask this yourself this question, here's a person really close to the cross, but they're moving that way, and there's a person way out here who's outside that boundary, but they're moving this way. Which one's healthier? What would you say? 
Right, but this one is so far away from redemption at this point that the baggage that they bring is uncomfortable for most of us that are over here. But this is the hell of your Christian. It may take them years to get to the point where they cross that line so that they look like what we want. Right? They may never do it. So if we are to be a church that is looking at bringing, bringing people in Summit County to come to know Christ, it could be m- really messy. It could be. Because they're not going to be like us. Because we've had a lot of years of redemption. And so a lot of the sin that I had 37 years ago, 38 years ago that I struggled with, pornography, all that kind of stuff, that's all, that's all been redeemed, healed. I don't have those issues today. <coughs> but if I bring a person out here, guess what? They're going to have those issues. Do we? And if we're not careful, we're going to force them to put on a front that is not reality, which is what we've done in many of our churches in the West. And boundaries are actually important. We pick our leadership based on boundaries. So we're not we're not about to put make someone an elder that has a drug addiction, for instance. We want them to have experienced sufficient level of redemption so that they can turn around and minister to people that haven't been there yet. Okay, so this is just an example, the second half of tonight, an example of how you can do research, bring biblical scholarship to bear do cultural analysis and how things begin to look a little different in Scripture. You see it? So was that helpful to play with these? So we're going to have examples every week in our class on what does this look like. Okay? By the way, we haven't done much work in what do you do with it? That comes later. you got to get used to interpreting and making these decisions first. All right, who would like to pray for us? Close our time.